Hi, Austin Titchener here, one-third of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. What you're about to hear is my conversation with Brian Dennehy, who passed away last night, not from the COVID virus, but from cardiac arrest due to sepsis. I recorded this conversation with him eight years ago in 2012 when Brian was 73 and acting in the Goodman Theater production of Eugene O'Neill's The Iceman Cometh. Our hearts go out to Brian's family, to his huge extended theater family, and to the many fans who are expressing their appreciation of him today on social media. He will be missed. You're in this definitive production here in Chicago of, of Iceman Cometh, but a, a five-hour marathon, and it's not even your first. It's your third production of this play. Yeah. Is it fair to call you the Iron Man of the American theater? <laughs> Iron pants? Old Iron pants? <laughs> Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever you are. Thanks for subscribing, streaming, or downloading and listening to us on your computer or MP3 player. I'm Austin Titchener, one-third of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, and you're listening to this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast number 289, Mr. Brian Dennehy. Olivier Award and two-time Tony Award-winning actor Brian Dennehy just completed a hugely successful sold-out run of Eugene O'Neill's epic play, The Iceman Cometh, directed by Robert Falls at the Goodman Theater in Chicago. I was lucky enough to see this mammoth production and even luckier to be able to talk to Brian about it. He started by telling me who he thinks the real Iron Man of the theater might be and how this man impacted some great theatrical literature. Probably the Iron Man of the American theater would be somebody like James O'Neill, Gene's father, who did, in those days, would do... Well, interestingly enough, they probably didn't do eight shows a week, although they would when they... If he was in Chicago working, which he did in the 1880s, they would do. But on the road, he eventually wound up doing Con Monte Cristo, I don't know, 4,000 times or 5,000 times essentially vaudeville productions and mm-hmm. vaudeville theaters where they would do where they would do 45 minute versions of it and he might do two or three a day uh, but it might be only two or three days a week and then they get on train and go on to the next venue yeah those guys were tough i mean that was <laughs> that was tough especially riding a train between uh, as of course mary Ty- mary tyrone or l o'neill which who was o'neill's mother constantly, constantly complained about it. And uh, until finally the old man built her a house, although kind of constructed a house or put slapped a house together right. uh, would be a better way of describing it in New London, which became Monte Cristo Cottage, which became the scene of Long Day's Journey yeah. and or uh, Our Wilderness, yeah. depending upon whether you like the dramatic version of the comic <laughs> You've done a lot of O'Neill. Are you drawn particularly to his plays or him as a playwright? Well, when I was growing up 40, 50 years ago, um, let's see, would have been mid-50s, I guess. I was 17, uh, 16, 17 in high school. And Jose Quintero and Jason Robards did a famous... Revival of this play, Iceman Cometh, at the old circle in the square, which had maybe 100 seats. Mm. And not that I was unaware of O'Neill beforehand. I was always, as a, as a kid, I was always a tremendous reader. I still am a big reader. But uh, 
I was aware of O'Neill, uh, but like most Americans in those days, vaguely aware of him. He was yeah. he was a kind of an artifact of the past. Um, but then suddenly, Iceman Cometh was done, hugely successfully in New York with a w- wonderful cast, which included Peter Falk and some fantastic actors. Al Lewis was in it. Uh, wow, uh, the old Villian. Yeah, well, Al Lewis went on to. No, I, I think you're thinking of somebody else. Al Lewis went on to be, become. Oh become a, a fixture in Car 54, Where Are You?, which is, shows you what happens when you succeed in O'Neill. If you're lucky, you get a mindless TV series. And the Munsters. He played Grandpa and the Munsters. That's right. He played Grandpa and the Munsters. And uh, <laughs> terrific. Anyway, there were wonderful actors in that company, in addition to, of course, Jason Robards. And six months later, by the six months later, this is about two years or so after O'Neill died. I think he died in 53 um, in, uh, in Boston. Uh, two years, and he died in relative obscurity. Two years later, of course, Long Day's Journey opened up, or three years later, in New York. It had opened up first in Stockholm, interestingly enough. O'Neill had stipulated in his will that he he never wanted the play produced. And it could only be read 25 years after his death. Didn't take long for Carlotta to uh, (laughs) ignore that. But... To her credit, yeah. the play needed to be done, needed to be seen, needed to be heard, which it has ever since that point. But in any case, I was I was always aware. Then became very much more with with Jason and Quintero, much more aware of it. And uh, so, and and in the last thirty years, I've done quite a bit of O'Neill. Uh, Bob and I have done. Iceman cometh now three times. Uh, we did Touch of the Poet, which is not done at all, hardly. And I remember sitting with Jason one night years ago, and we both agreed that that was our favorite O'Neill play, probably because it is so difficult to do. It's yeah. uh, very difficult for the audience, but it's a wonderful play. And it's more stately managed. I haven't done that, but uh, but we I did Huey, and I did uh, Desire Under the Elms, and... Uh, Long day's journey. So I've done a lot of O'Neill. Yeah. Well, um, we saw, uh, you know, Reduce Shakespeare Company. I, I, I anticipated coming to see Iceman Cometh thinking there is no play that needs reduc- reducing more <laughs> than, than, than this one. But, but yet the enormity of it is part of it. It's part of the experience of it. Well, we, le- we leapt to our feet not, not only because you guys are great, but because we were all celebrating what we had achieved by sitting through it. You leapt to your feet because you had to go to the bathroom. <laughs> but, um, the, uh, the fact is that all of O'Neill's plays, and certainly this is the most, but there are other ones that are longer. I mean, uh, Strange Interlude is six hours long, and they have a dinner break usually when they do it. And then you've got, uh, you know, got, you've got uh, uh, something, something millions. I can't think of it now. They're all lots of long plays. Right. Shaw, of course, wrote the longest of all, which is Don Juan in Hell, I think. Which I don't know how long that runs. But look, the thing about O'Neill's plays, uh, it's not just the length of them; it's the repetitions, the repetitions of a theme. In many cases, the repetitions of phrases over and over again. And when you're rehearsing it, your reaction is, "Oh my God." Did you ever have an editor? Did anybody ever say, Gene, you know? But the fact is, it was all brilliantly understood by him, mm-hmm. which was uh, th- this type of theater is like a tsunami. 
It's rising water. And unless you're completely dead mentally or emotionally, you are caught up in it and swept away in it. And, and after four hours, four hours and 15 minutes, in the middle of the fourth act, the audience as drained and ex- as exhausted as they may be, and certainly as the actors are, they are listening, yeah. absolutely listening. And they're being bombarded by this passion and this intelligence and this, this point of view, because there's a very strong point of view in everything. And they surrender to it. Uh, they can't really help but surrender to it. So there was no other writer, certainly not an American writer, like him in that sense. Mary McCarthy, who uh, was a famous writer herself and wrote a book for which I guess she's going to be remembered called The Group, which was not a great book, but she wrote a lot for The New Yorker. She wrote reviews and essays for The New Yorker and had an acerbic, uh, nasty uh, wit. Once wrote about O'Neill, and this is very true, she she wrote that O'Neill is not a good writer, but he is a great one. Mm. And that's as good a description, capsule description. You know, he doesn't worry about the lesser effects or the lesser game of writing a witty sentence and having a witty exchange. He doesn't worry about that. He worries about the cumulative effect of this passionate interpretation of life and the important things of life. Pipe the necessity of pipe dreams, the necessity of illusion, of self-delusion, the this modern dilemma, and which he understood right away from in the twenties. He read uh, Freud and Jung in the German, taught himself German, so he could read Freud and Jung. Only a, a polymath like O'Neill could do that. A polymath who had flunked out of both Princeton <laughs> and Harvard, which is the only thing an intellectual should really do. But in any case, a genuine intellectual, which he was, he understood all the stuff about modern psychology and understanding the human mind and so forth and he rejected most of it yeah. and said uh, you know that what, dif- what, what differentiates us from the animals who do live according to instinct is that we dream and uh, the dream is the most important part of our lives the dream is not something that has to be controlled or ignored or turned one's back upon it has to be understood and nurtured, and uh, the dreams are what make us different from everybody else, and they, they should not be taken out of our lives. They should be cherished. Mm-hmm. cherished. Well, that was the big takeaway for me from this production, I, much more so than just, just having read it, was, was for a five, almost five-hour play of a bunch of men, a bunch of drunks sitting around, it was a surprisingly active play and optimistic one at the end. Yeah, because... I mean, what O'Neill is saying is that life is a certain thing. It's all kinds of disparate energy flying off in all kinds of different directions, a lot of them negative. But in, it's all life. Yeah. It's, all to, it's all to be grabbed hold of and used and cherished and, if possible, understood. But understanding is not nearly as important as actually living it. Yeah. And uh, too many people tried to live it in a way that that uh, essentially controls it. it says I will take over life I will hold life and I'll mold it 
to my purpose and to my objectives and so on and so forth. And O'Neill says, says, that's all nonsense. Mm. You're lucky to be there. I mean, you've won the lottery just being born. And you've got a certain amount of time. Time is the only thing you have, not a tremendous amount of time. And what you better do is find out what life is going to do to you. And then enjoy it if you can. And if you can't, at least experience it. At least let it happen to you. Let it occur to you. Which doesn't mean you, you live completely uh, a life without any discipline or any idea or any ambition at all, because God knows O'Neill had all kinds of ambition. But uh, uh, whatever the experiences are, they're all part of existence, and you're a fool if you don't uh, take advantage of every minute and, uh, and just let it happen to you. You played Hickey twice. Now you're playing Larry Slade in this production. At any point in rehearsal, did you look at Nathan Lane as playing Hickey and just kind of give him a kind of a, really, you're going to do it that way kind of a thing? No. No, Nathan is a far better actor than I am, and he's a star for a reason. He, um, his skills are incredible. And his understanding and his determination, his, 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 uh, his, Desire to to do the profound work, the difficult work, the hard work, yeah. is enormous. Which is why you know he moved from essentially. I mean, he's done serious parts before, but this is the most serious yeah. part. This is certainly the most serious and difficult and demanding of American parts because it's essentially American. It's uh, it's O'Neill's understanding of what all of the traps are, what all of the what all of the uh, uh, weaknesses are of the American environment, the American experience, the American version of life. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of the people on stage are, are, are victims of, of ambitions and drives and needs that they could not particularly fulfill. I mean, Larry has a wonderful line in the early in the play describing these abject, down-and-out, drunken bums. He says, I've never known more contented men. It isn't often men attain the true goal of their heart's desire. Now, it's a sardonic line, but the sardonic quality doesn't mean it's not true. Right. He, he, these people are contented. They have achieved their heart's desire, which is to just... Uh, accept their victimhood and the fact that they're probably the architects of their own disaster, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Right, right. So, is Slade easier apart, or is it in some ways harder because you're on stage the entire show? Well, I, you know, that's you know, you got to have. A, see, I'm, I have a typical Irish ass, which is I have no ass at all, it's all belly and no ass. So it's uh, sitting in one position, and you have to. For long periods of time, you have to try not to move because you don't want even accidentally focus to slip from one side to the other, which is physically difficult. Uh, and, and, of course, my arthritis barks at me constantly. But um, uh, in terms of the problem, the normal problems of acting, uh, certainly Hickey is one of the most difficult roles, and I would not put Larry into that. Every, every part has its own problems that have to be right. solved. Larry's problem is, of course, as is everyone, including Hickey, uh, is that Larry has his own pipe dreams. Yeah. And his are rudely ripped away from him. And he only really understands that in the last moments of the play. 
Hickey never gets it. Ironically, even the, the man who's trying to destroy everybody's illusions never completely loses his. But, the, you know, it's easy to make the case that he has really become demented. Is one of the things that you like about the theater, I mean, aside from the money, obviously... <laughs> um, that's really funny. <laughs> the ability to just play different roles, not be typecast. I mean, that's one of the, the pleasures of seeing this, is to see Nathan in this role, a role that he not doesn't necessarily get to play. Yeah, it drives me crazy when people say that, but uh, yeah, I guess it's true. Um, I don't know. The, the, the only thing that's interesting to me about the theater anymore, I mean, there was a time when I had ambitions and I felt that I had to do this, and this was a move up, and this was a move sideways, and this potentially was a move down. And, you know, I went through all that. I'm, hell, I'm an American like everybody else. The only thing that interests me now is going into a rehearsal room with a really good script and a bunch of other actors and trying to figure it all out and trying to come up with something that when you go out on stage and there's an audience there, you give them something... You produce something for them so that they understand something about themselves that they may not have understood beforehand. And that's really the ball game. The ball game is um, it's here for you if you want to reach out and take it. This piece of understanding, which was not created by me, which was created by a man writing in the mountains outside of San Francisco in 1939 or 1940. But it's still significant and meaningful and it has meaning to you if you want if you want to consider it and so what's interesting to me is not so much even the performances which can be destroyed by one person opening a candy or somebody la- uh, coughing inappropriately mm-hmm. what's important to me is the rehearsal process of trying to discover it for myself and then trying to understand what it is you have to do as an actor to make it available to the audience you can't do any more than that you can't do any more. You can't grab them by the neck and shake them. You make it available to them. And, and as I always say to people who bitch about audiences, hey, they're the ones who came. Yeah. They're here. You know, the ones who didn't come, they've already told us what they think about it. But these people are actually here. They bought the tickets. They want to hear something. Yeah. Well, you make it available to them. And, but my, the most interesting part of the whole process is not the performance for me. It's the rehearsal. Yeah. It's discovering it for myself and for the rest of us. This podcast is a production of the Reduce Shakespeare Company. Reducing expectations since 1981. Go to ReduceShakespeare.com for performance dates, actor bios, email newsletters, and so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less.